name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our gospel lesson for this third Sunday after the Epiphany is the passage from Matthew about Jesus having heard John the Baptist had been arrested, picking up John's work, and even quoting John directly. Matthew tells us that Jesus even moved back to Galilee. Now technically, Nazareth is already in Galilee, but it was only a quiet village in the hills. Matthew tells us that Jesus moved from there to Capernaum, right on the Sea of Galilee, which at this time was this bustling fish and olive oil processing center. But it was in the direct sight line of Herod Antipas. Yes, the same Herod who played a major role in John the Baptist's demise and who will feature again in Jesus' own passion. Capernaum is about six miles north of Tiberias, which is where Herod lived, only about an hour and a half walk. And just so we're all on the same page, that word sea is a pretty grand word for our freshwater lake, about seven miles across and a little more than 12 miles long. So all that being said, Jesus was moving out of safety toward danger, not away from it. Jesus was moving out of obscurity into a bustling cosmopolitan city, a center of political and economic activity. Jesus began this ministry along the Via Maris, the way of the sea which is one of the most important trade routes in the ancient Middle East. It actually linked Egypt all the way to what is now modern-day Iran. It ran along the western side of the Sea of Galilee through Capernaum and near Tiberias, and this road was controlled by toll and tax collectors. And likewise, the Sea of Galilee was controlled by fishing police who checked contracts and checked fishing licenses. So taxation, even fishing, were things that were highly exploited by the Roman Empire. And all of this placed this impossibly heavy burden on all the laborers and everyone who lived there. And according to the ancient historian Josephus, Herod, who was this Roman-appointed ruler of the region, was this lover of luxury in every way that was over the top. Whereas fishermen, fish sellers, worked in these impoverished and shameful occupations only recognized slightly higher than tax collectors themselves. Now, we really only know two jobs among Jesus' first 12 disciples. Four were fishermen, and one was a tax collector. So were the other seven unemployed when Jesus called them to follow him? We don't know. Did he try to call other people from other trades who maybe turned him down? We don't really know that either. 
And I used to think that if the promise of fishing for people made everyone drop their nets, maybe they really didn't have that much to lose in the first place. But in fact, Peter complains later in Matthew's gospel that they had given up everything to follow Jesus. So clearly for Peter, Andrew, James, and John, there was something so compelling about Jesus and his teaching, his healing, his feeding ministries, that they just had to go. There was something in Jesus' call that touched the longing within their hearts for changing their world, both for themselves and for so many others like them who were suffering. And that idea that they left everything immediately can stir up some anxious emotions, can it? It might help us to know that that word immediately that's used, it can refer to something that's in a short amount of time, like right away, or it can also mean the very next event, which is relevant to the whole story. Kind of like looking back on the sequence of events and saying, well, the next thing you know, they put down their fishing nets and left their boats and started traveling with Jesus. It might have been a matter of minutes or a matter of days or even months. Jesus and those first followers might have been total strangers to each other. Or Jesus might have known them for some time. Some speculate, and John's gospel certainly points, that Jesus knew these men all the way back to his baptism at the Jordan River. But the bottom line is that we really don't know. But what we do know is that whatever they heard or saw from Jesus on that particular day, at that particular place by the sea, was certainly some kind of wake-up call in their lives. And the part that gets the least amount of talking time in most of the Bible studies, or even the books that I've come across, is that whole part about fishing for people. We've heard it quoted many different times and in many different ways. I'll make you fish for people. I'll make you fishers of men. And it's generally considered to be an integral part of our Christian job description. But here's the thing about fishing like they do on the Sea of Galilee. You don't use bait or hooks. You cast this large net and pull it up to see just what's gotten tangled up in it. You do it at night when the fish can't really see the net and can't swim away easily. It's really hard work, very labor intensive, and it really has little to do with technique or any skill. And all that hard work doesn't even stop once that fishing is done. Nets have to be washed and mended every morning when you come back. It's also not a year-round activity. There are seasons which are good for fishing. It all has much more to do with persistence, strength, endurance, and commitment to the end goal. So with all of that in mind, how might we think about what fishing for people really means?
Well, in a way, it's really about community and relationship. Because this kind of fishing isn't at all like fly fishing or bass fishing. This is about a group of people repeatedly lowering and raising these huge nets just to find out who or what has been caught up by a hunger and a thirst for right relationship with others and a longing for the compassion and the mercy of God. And the reason to catch people is that through God's grace and with God's help, we might just have something that people need. At St. John's, for example, we are a community where the beauty of holiness shines very brightly in the darkness of our sinful and broken world. And while we are certainly not perfect, nor will we ever be, we strive to be this example of what it means to live into the liberating messages and practices of equality, of caring for those who suffer, and of a community based on God's rule of love instead of that often misused and exploited righteous indignation. We strive to be this living example of what the whole Bible teaches, that the peace of God comes through justice and mercy and kindness instead of through economic or political power or intimidation. We strive to be this living example of generosity and compassion. Of course, we miss the mark, but a lot of times we are right on target. And whether you know it or not, you, the particular body of Christ known as St. John's Church, you are brave and you are a loving people. And there are a lot of people who are hungry and who are thirsty for a community that is generous and compassionate, brave and loving. There are a lot of people who do not have a community like this in their lives. But making that choice to go out and fish is only the first step. Because when you eventually raise that net, what is it that you want to show the people that have been caught? Well, we show them that as followers of Christ, we share a balm for healing, bread for hunger, water for thirst, a roof for shelter. We show them dignity and respect, compassion and mercy, just as God has shown us. And we invite them to be a part of this body of Christ in whatever ways they can. Because in doing so, we show them and we show ourselves that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love, truly has come near. <laughs>